Are you looking to advance your technology, develop your skills, work with our network of experts, and get top-notch mentorship? Applications are open for the UCSF Rosamond Rise. Through Rise, we identify promising entrepreneurs from groups that are underrepresented in health tech, such as women, people of color, and LGBTQ individuals, and we connect them with any number of leaders from our UCSF network and beyond. To apply, please visit rosamaninstitute.org slash programs slash rise. Applications close on February 9th. That's one core of it, just diversifying medtech. The other pieces and, and how we want to do that is we want to help create 100 black and brown CEOs. And we do that through our pitch competition where we're specifically focusing on black and brown, including Latinx uh, founders and, and providing in-kind services and monetary supports as well to try to, to create these leaders of color who are actually driving innovations that are addressing the needs of the underrepresented. We are also creating thought leadership. We're creating community. Um, I'm a big believer in if you see it, you can be it. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. At the Rosamond Institute, we aim to uplift entrepreneurs from underrepresented communities because I know firsthand how important diversity is. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today, Nada Hanafi, because she's also part of the fight to make our community more equal. Nada is an incredible industry leader with an amazing career. Today, she serves as the board director at MedTechColor as well as the CSO of Experience. Nada's resume also includes 12 years at the FDA and a strong history in women's health. Today, I pick her brain about the regulatory questions you might have. She also tells some of her career stories and talks about how we all can promote diversity in the industry we love. Here's our conversation. Well, Neda, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you for having me, Christine. I'm so excited to be here. I know. We've been talking about having you in this podcast for a while now, so I'm looking forward to our conversation. I thought it would be great to uh, for our listeners to hear about your background. Uh, definitely from your accent, I can tell that you did not grow up here in the United States. I didn't grow up in the U.S. I mean, <laughs> tell us more about your journey that brought you to where you are today. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. You're right. My accent is not from the U.S. I um, I grew up in the U.K., but I'm originally from Sudan, and that's um, in Africa, for those who don't know. <laughs> um, and I'm from northern Sudan because Sudan now has split up. So there's a north and a south, unfortunately. But I, I, I hail from the northern part. Um, and I moved to the UK when I was fairly young, permanently, uh, at the age of nine, and then spent most of my formative years there. I came to the US um, in 2003. So I'm coming up on 20 years in the US, but still trying to hold tight to my British accent. Um, and 
I started my journey actually in a small uh, kind of med tech space in the dental space. And then I transitioned to the FDA. And I, I say FDA is where I grew up or again, where I spent my foundational years there learning about regulatory science. Um, and then in 2017, transitioned into consulting where I reside now. And I'm a regulatory strategist by training. Uh, I took all that training from FDA um, and kind of put it into practice, working with companies to help them devise a least burdensome approach to get their medical devices onto the market. Um, just uh, education-wise, I have a undergrad in biomedical engineering from the UK, and I have a master's in biomaterials from there as well. And then I also combine that with a public health degree, MPH from Hopkins, while I was at FDA. Um, mm. Funny note is like I think I'm I was one of the first engineers there to get a master's in public health, even though FDA is this regulatory agency that's tasked with protecting and promoting public health. Uh, early on in the 2000s, there were few public health folks there, but that's shifted mm-hmm. a lot now, and there's a lot of public health experts in the agency. We were heavily engineering focused, so that that's my journey. A little bit high level overview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more university now that offer public health and yes. their program now too. And so, what brought to you to the U.S.? I mean, oh, I, uh, my husband, my first husband. <laughs> um, I had just finished my master's, and um, I was looking for something new. What do I do after this? You know, biomaterials degree and. Um, I, I think I thought there's a lot more opportunities in the U.S. I, I was in Maryland, and Maryland, there's this technology corridor, um, and uh, there were a lot of opportunities. At that time, I would actually go knocking on doors with a paper resume. I don't think anyone remembers those anymore. <laughs> on different types of paper. And I, there was a lot of med tech and biotech companies in the space, so I went searching for work. I was also applying online, and... I think it was just by luck or serendipity. FDA called me and said, oh, we have your resume. And, um, you know, they did a phone interview. Um, It was for plastic and reconstructive surgery and breast implant group at that time. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. We'd love to have you come in. And then the closing question was, you are American, aren't you? (laughs) And I was like, no. I do not know that it's a requirement. (laughs) Exactly. And they're like, oh, we can't hire you if you're not American. So I was like, oh, what a shame. So in the meantime, while I was still, you know, actively looking for work, it's it's a very funny story. I, I started a Spanish class. I don't like to sit idle. So I was doing an evening Spanish class at a local school. And I happened to run into the then um, office director for the pre-market group at CDRH. I had no idea who he was. Um, we just created this, you know, relationship, friendship. And, uh, at the, you know, it was, I think, the last class. Um, and then his partner was introducing who he was, where he resided. I was like, oh, I got a call from you. They interviewed me. They wanted to give me a job, but they said I can't because I'm not American. <laughs> it's like, that's not right. <laughs> just come in, come meet with us. <laughs> 
it kind of worked out that we managed to figure out a way for me to get hired by FDA. Um, <laughs> so I guess, you know, lesson learned there. No is the opening bid. <laughs> yeah. So you end up working as, I mean, I did not re- realize that was a requirement of FDA that you have to work for. I mean, obviously it's not, but is there like a minimum you have to be like, I don't know, green card holder or... Yes, yes. I think there was some something about, you know, the, the what's the word, the immigration status. And, you know, I, I was then known as the foreign immigrant or, or the alien. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's how, that's how it's actually referred to, you know, you're an alien immigrant or whatever. Um, so they figured out a way to hire me under a certain visa type. Um, and I, I managed to start my journey there. And um, yeah, it's not it's not per se. They were hiring a lot of foreigners, per, non-U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think NIH is a, a federal agency that's more familiar with doing that. And FDA was kind of trying to get up to speed in doing it. So got it. So tell me more about now that you've done you're doing you've done consulting for a while and then you grew up in the FDA. How is it different being the FDA and then consulting the company working with the FDA? Yeah, absolutely. So so it's funny while I was at FDA, I had this on running tally with one of my really good colleagues um, based on my last role before leaving the agency. And we, we were kind of like consultants anyway. We were consultants to the other offices outside of CDRH, the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Um, we were also consulting sometimes to NIH, the Office of Research on Women's Health there. And we loved it. Um, it was very interesting. And, you know, we had also kind of a running joke of uh, you don't want to go to the dark side. And industry at that time was considered the dark side. Again, that has totally shifted and changed. Um, so I, I like the idea of moving into consulting, and I, I think it served me well. Um, I, I work with all types of companies at different stages in their product development. So as I mentioned earlier, I feel I took my learnings in regulatory science and now started to implement them, apply them to actually helping companies get their product through FDA, starting at the pre-submission phase where you're communicating regularly with FDA on what's my pathway to market, what's the benefit risk of my product, um, what's the evidence generation that I might need to uh, collect to support safety and effectiveness and so forth. And it's been um, eye-opening. I I think um, at FDA, uh, you kind of look at the submission in front of you, and that's where we were trying to move away from that and, and look at the bigger picture of, what are the consequences of the decisions we're making at FDA as relates to a product? And what's the larger implication on public health? Um, and and here, I've, I've seen it. I've um, it, It's fascinating to see some of the obstacles and the challenges. And for early startups, it's always about money and time, right? And the more time it takes, the more money you're running through, and then you got to go raise it. And Raising it is not an easy aspect, as many of us know. Um, so it's 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 been another educational and um, exciting journey. I feel like I'm constantly learning, mm-hmm. and the beauty of it is 
working with different types of companies, different types of products that touch every part of the body. Um, you can still draw the links, though. You can connect the dots to say, what's a, a strategy that's likely going to work and how to advise clients to avoid maybe pitfalls um, that others have gone through or that we've seen have not been as effective. So, it, I, I mean, I think that's what keeps me going is I, I'm continuously learning and being challenged. Mm-hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So you mentioned about pitfall. What are the most common pitfalls that you saw uh, from a lot of the startups that came through your door? Uh, um, it goes back to basics. If we're talking regulatory, you're taking me into regulatory now. Let me tell you strategy regulatory 101. Um, you need to have a very clear product description. Know what your product is. Own it. Um, because when you don't, that's where you start to flounder or, or, or get into some trouble. And you also need to understand what your product does, that intended use indications for you. So I think one of the biggest pitfalls is when folks have not fully defined that. And it's evolving, right? Sometimes early stage, you're still evolving on what are the functionalities of my product. But don't go to FDA too early before you flush that out, right? Um, and I think that's a critical piece. Another pitfall is where we like to refer to as regulatory rescue. Some sponsors, some small companies get in front of FDA and because they don't have a clear strategy, they're taking down a path that's probably not the most ideal path. Um, And you kind of go in this cycle where you're really not moving forward um, and not getting clarity. Uh, You want it to be a 510k, you were kick to a de novo or vice versa. You went de novo and FDA said, now you're five to Whatever it is, you didn't flush out your strategy thoughtfully up front. So you're in these um, uh, non-meaningful conversations with FDA. It's not moving forward. Or you get in a trajectory where now FDA is really questioning everything you're putting in front of them. And you need to kind of um, reestablish that relationship, get back on good terms um, and, and get FDA to start to trust you again. Um, so, so I guess that, you know one the the the, the key take home there is uh, know your strategy, know your product, be an expert in it. And when you do, I think it, it's kind of smooth sailing. Um, FDA does not want to be an expert on your device, and that's a bit of my strategy. I don't want to be an expert on your device. Mm-hmm. As a consultant, you should be that expert. We're the expert on the regulatory pathway and regulatory requirements, and 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 guiding you down least burdensome approach. Uh, but they want you to really know your product and be able to answer their questions um, in a most effective manner to get you to to that approval clearance granting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you one last question about regulatory because I do want to talk to you about your other adventures that you're working on right now. Uh, 
you mentioned about, you know, building trust with the FDA. And because once you lost that trust, you have to build that trust again. That can be really painful. What are the things that usually cause the FDA to lose trust? Like, how do you build that trust to make sure that you don't have to backpedal? Like, okay, now I have to build it. You know, building trust takes a long time. It does. You know, trust is a is a interesting concept, right? And sometimes it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great question. And when you start to ask me about my other adventures, we can talk a bit more about trust. I, but I, I think trust in the in the sense of trust with FDA and trust and confidence in the product you're putting in front of them, right? Um, safety and effectiveness is is the crux of it. We want to make sure products are safe and effective, and when they get to market, they remain safe and effective, right? For that intended use population, I think it all goes back to the quality of the information you put in front of them, um, and, and can you stand behind it? Valid scientific evidence is also the root of everything FDA does. They're scientifically based agency. Um, they need to evaluate products on benefit risk profile. And if if you lose, I think you lose the trust when you're either, there's the compliance aspect, when you might be adulterating, misbranding your product, i.e. you're marketing your product beyond what it's really used for if you have a clearance um, for certain claims. And, and that's where you go down that um poor approach of warning letters and so forth. And that that's you're on FDA's radar then. Um, so, you know, before you put anything in front of FDA, check your website, because trust me, they're going to be looking at that website <laughs> when that pre-submission comes in or whenever that 510K, whatever submission you're putting in front of them, they do their due diligence. So you want to make sure you're marketing your product appropriately. Um, or if it's not cleared or approved yet in the U.S., you have those statements there. Um, so th- that's that's a messy part. If you get those warning letters and walking back from there, will take time, like anything, right? right. For them to start to have confidence in you, um, they're likely going to scrutinize a lot more of, of what information you put in front of them. Um, so I mean, it it's also like if you say something and then. You don't have the evidence to stand behind it. Again, it goes behind what's the evidence and the data you have to support what you're saying about your product and wanting to do the right thing as well. They can read one little piece is they can read in between the lines. You might say, my product's intended to do this, but they also know that you're you're just saying that and once it gets to market, it's likely going to be used off-label, but you're like, oh, well, I'm not promoting it off-label. So it's just that balance, right? You kind of want to be very transparent. And I think that's where FDA will trust you as a collaborative member. They want to collaborate with you to an extent. They still have a role. In a way, they are gatekeepers, right? They're meant to make sure that products are going to be safe and effective. They have to do their public health service. Um, So it's a balance for them as well. But they want to make sure they're getting good products to market to help improve health outcomes. So, I mean, trust is an interesting and and um, concept, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's not just with the FDA, but I think with everything that you do in life. And it's uh, everything is about trust. It's even if you have a contract before you sign that contract, even after you sign the contract, 
you don't have the trust that make working together really difficult, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at it, at, you know, the core of what we do in MedTech is that at the heart of it is the patient. And do patients have trust in the products they're using, in the clinicians they're seeing, in the uh, clinical or health advice they're being provided? Uh, you could spin it around. Is there trust in the clinical research enterprise? There is a lack of trust out there. And yeah. it's seen in many different communities, more so in the, the uh, historically marginalized communities, the black and brown, the Hispanic, you know, and it, it stems from the history of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you overcome that barrier so that you are actually serving these communities appropriately and winning their trust. Yeah, yeah. And some, it takes time sometimes to, to, to build that. So tell me more about, you know, which is a good segue to your uh, the MedTech Color. You co-founded MedTech Color in 2018. And tell us more about the genesis of it, why and what is the mission and why do you think it's so important? Thank you. A, a project near and dear to my heart. Um, so yes, MedTech Color is a nonprofit. And like you said, we were founded in 2018. And it was by a group of executives, people of color, um, who came together to break bread, as we like to say, uh, and shared their experiences. Uh, and the theme was that we tended to be an N of one, be it as a person of color or even more so as a female, right? Uh, in those uh, key decision um, roles or meetings and rooms, um, and and that wasn't right. And for me, it was it, it was very poignant when I came from the East Coast, working at FDA, where there was a lot of diversity, especially in leadership as well, um, in in sex and in race and ethnicity. And I came over to the West Coast and Silicon Valley, and was touting, oh, it's so diverse. Um, I'm like, where is this diversity? <laughs> I don't see it. Um, and it didn't feel right. So MedTechColor was founded with the mission of diversifying MedTech. We want to increase the representation of people of color who enter MedTech, stay in MedTech, and then ultimately make it to those key decision-making roles. Mm-hmm. Leadership has to be representative of the patient population we're trying to serve. And if it's not, you're not going to be creating equitable products that are going to meet the end user's needs. That's that's just mm-hmm. that's just that's 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 the reality of it. Um, because I think we spoke about it earlier before we started this conversation, the lived experience, right? Um, and and understanding how that really translates into what these patients need. So, so that, that's one core of it, just diversifying medtech. The other pieces and, and how we want to do that is we want to help create 100 black and brown CEOs. And we do that through our pitch competition where we're specifically focusing on black and brown, including Latinx uh, founders and, and providing in-kind services and monetary support as well to try to, to create these leaders of color who are actually driving innovations that are addressing the needs of the underrepresented. We are also creating thought leadership. We're creating community. Um, I'm a big believer in if you see it, you can be it. Um, So you want to 
display to the upcoming generations that there are folks out there who look like you, who may share a similar background, history, journey to you, and, and look what they're doing and achieving. So, so that's really important to us regarding creating community and thought leadership. And then the last bit is about what you were speaking to earlier, addressing the, the needs of underrepresented populations. So we have our collaborative community, and that's an FDA-endorsed collaborative community where FDA said, if there's a public health need out there, folks in the ecosystem, if you want to try and address it and we agree with your mission and approach, we'll join you. So our collaborative community is on diversity and inclusion in medical device product development and clinical research. Um, and we stood that up in 2020, mid-pandemic. FDA actually reached out to us and said, hey, MedTechColor, you should be a convener of this. And it has garnered so much traction and so much attention. We have some amazing members at the table working on addressing, um, you know, as I said, diversity inclusion or in product development. So it's developing process, inclusive products. And then, of course, the clinical research aspect where um, we know women and, and minorities have typically been excluded from clinical research. Tell me more about that, because you were saying about this is the FDA initiative, but what does that mean, like developing a product for women and for underrepresented? Is like working with a company or com- people who have an idea for product to serve that particular population? Tell me more. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's quite broad. We have four subcommittees. We have the disease awareness, we have evidence generation, recruitment and retention, and we also have product development and clinical research, which could be a whole, which is really the name of the collaborative community. So the members we have at the table include, like you said, the big traditional medical device companies, Medtronic, J&J, Edwards, Abbott, you know, those traditional, well-established medical device companies. We also have the AMA and professional societies at the table. What's really exciting to me, actually, is we have patients as part of our collaborative community. So we're trying to develop best practices um, uh, and recommendations for these manufacturers that ultimately go out and, and develop these products to elicit the the awareness uh, that there are differences in the needs based on your different patient populations. And it's not that companies don't think about this, but they might look at it just from an anatomical aspect. But there are so many other factors you need to consider when developing a product. It's also if we can drive development of products um, specifically for uh disease areas that might be ignored or less less attractive, right? Um, so we're early on. We've been around, what, a year and a half now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a year and a half. <laughs> and while we were developing it, uh, Vanessa, my, my co-lead on it, um, says we, you know, we were flying the plane while building it. <laughs> so, you know, but we kept it up. <laughs> And it's been one exciting journey. So we're fleshing out like the key priority areas, but one big area is also kind of going into communities, being grassroots as well. We're doing some focus groups now um, 
with with women of color, specifically uh, African-American women with heart disease, to understand what their journey in dealing with their heart disease condition has been mm-hmm. and their experiences in even accessing healthcare. Um, and we've done three focus groups across the East Coast, um, and the learnings thus far have been very similar, unfortunately. So now, how can we take that and and elicit change? How can we help make sure that these women actually get more equitable healthcare, better health access, get access to the innovations that would really improve their health outcomes? Um, so that that's one big one piece of it. But then there's also the other piece of yeah, how you know. Can you inform, can we help uh, these big companies and they're doing it um, be more equitable in terms of how they develop the products and where they're seeking to innovate? And can it be in disease areas that um, these, you know, underrepresented patient populations could really benefit from? Yeah. Now, I'm curious now, you mentioned that you've know, run three different places with the studies and they all have the same experience which is unfortunate. Can you tell us more what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's sad, you know, that, that, that there's a lack of trust, first of all. Um, they feel that uh, physicians don't really hear them mm. and don't care to hear them or speak down to them, um, that they're just prescribed medications but not explain. They, don't, they, they, don't, they aren't told why they're prescribed this medication. Um, they feel that even being able to access their physician, sometimes their primary care lives 23 miles away, mm-hmm. even being able to make it to their doctor's appointment, finding um, childcare for their kids to make it to doctor's appointments, um, the cost of getting there. Uh, they have other healthcare um, needs that they can't um, address because they're the primary caregiver to a lot of folks right. in their family. Very, I mean, very similar stories, but even in terms of interacting with the healthcare system, it's that sense of being ignored. Your needs don't matter. Um, no one really cares to say, how are you really, right? Um, just very similar stories. And we're planning to you know, summarize our findings um, and, and share this on a broader perspective, but also go back into the communities. I mean, you were speaking about trust, right? And one thing is, historically, you, you go in, you take this information, data from these willing participants, but you never feed it back. You never tell them what you found and what you plan to do with it. Um, and that's why having patients at the table helping us with these focus groups, um, it's, it's, we're moving at the speed of trust. Um, there's this great approach that they've taken. It's it's called building the table together. So when we go to these focus groups, we take a table and um, it's to show the community we're not just planning to just come in once, take your information and then leave. We're mm-hmm. coming back. We want to build the table together. And each time we go back, we're going to put a leg on the table to stabilize it. Um, and it's been so well received by the participants and they just, being so honest and open with what they share and what their what their experience has been, and then it's also kind of can we can we um, get them the resources they need as well, and partner with others um, 
in the community to help make sure that they are getting equitable healthcare. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about the the trust that they they often are not being heard and uh, ignored. And how is that information? Because those are like biases, prejudice. And how mm-hmm. is the technology uh, can help alleviate or you know change the bias? I mean, I mean, I have a personal experience, even though I am not African American. I'm a woman, and I went to see a doctor. I literally was really upset because they don't want to answer any question because you're literally being talked down, like you're asking questions that even if I explain to you, you will not understand anyway, which I thought was really interesting. And a friend of mine who's a doctor was making that comment is that, well, maybe because you're Asian, you have accent, they assume that you're not educated. And I thought that was really insulting and annoying. And and then when I pushed back, the doctor felt like, oh my God, you know, because I was to a point I was really upset. But I'm just thinking, how do you use technology to change that bias. Wow. Well, I, I think so many women could probably relate to your experience. I, I have one experience where when I was pregnant, I had the same. I was seen, oh, you're a black woman. And he straight away said, you're African-American. I said, actually, I'm not African-American. And then he listed all these risk factors. And he said, you know, you should be taking this drug. You might have heard of it. And it's cheap. It's called aspirin. <laughs> so everything you just said as relates to a, a physician just take looking at you and making up all these assumptions right the biases you're female you're black you clearly don't know what i'm going to talk about so i'll just dumb it down for you right right and i i think you won't be able to afford it mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so it's like wow and 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 it starts at the physician, the caregiver, right. You, right? That that practitioner, because if they don't acknowledge their own biases, um, right. and 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 your first interaction with the clinician will likely determine the trajectory of care that you receive moving forward, right? Um, and there's a lot of opportunities for technology to influence that, but right now, I think. Where companies, you know, uh, doing all these clinical research are trying to to change things is to make sure first you're including the patients in the clinical studies, but even further upstream as you're designing these products, um, including the patient perspective, having patients at the table to really understand what their needs are, um, having them input into how you potentially design a product. Mm-hmm. Um, for their unique needs. Um, but incorporating patient perspective throughout the product development cycle, there's opportunities and FDA sees that as well. And they're also willing to accept that. They want that as, as another data point in terms of how they evaluate um, and, and look at these products regarding safety and benefit um, because they know that patient perspectives are extremely valuable. And and um, patients tend to sometimes be less risk averse than mm-hmm. regulators, mm-hmm. and are willing to take a a certain level of risk mm-hmm. that um, for 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 another an an uh, uh, um, an outcome or benefit um, 
because the benefit outweighs the risk for them in their perspective, right? And we might not see it that way as a regulator or as a manufacturer. So incorporating that patient perspective in the in the decision-making process is really critical. Yeah. But I mean, technology can be used in many ways, right? So Yeah. Now I'm glad that, you know, I think the FDA definitely has uh, put a lot of emphasis on patient uh, advocacy, uh, patient uh, needs, and I'm just trying to think also the corporate oftentimes is they have to focus on their bottom line and then mm-hmm. serving certain population group. And if you put women as 50%, but then, you know, when you bring underrepresented, it, is, it becomes smaller. And to what extent this is something that they really think is important or this is something that's a, it sounded good? For manufacturers, you mean? Yeah. I, I don't know. I actually think most manufacturers are well-intentioned, but you're right. It's the ROI, right? Mm-hmm. Is it worthwhile spending all this money? And what is my market access and what's going to be my return on investment? Like if I put all this up front. And I think the mindset is shifting. Like everything, everyone now is talking about health equity. Um and if they're smart, actually, I think they'll get a lot more return on investment if you are targeting your products and your technologies and your innovations um, in areas and disease states that have been ignored in the past. Um, it makes sense. And, you know, it's a balance as well. Like these big manufacturers, they can have what's bringing them in the big bucks, but you can also have your your other product lines that are actually addressing health inequities. Um, and, and I think the leadership shifting and the mindset, but again, it goes back to what we started with. You need people of color in leadership positions, mm-hmm. in key decision-making roles. Um, I mean, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it best, women need to be in all rooms where decisions are being made. And I'd say women and people of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think that's uh, that's very important. And I'm glad to see things are moving towards the right direction. And uh, one last question before uh, we end this conversation. I feel like I can talk about this all the time. Um it's a lot of work to start something, you know, metric color, and I'm sure there's a lot of ups and downs. What is the mantra that you use to keep yourself going? What a great question. <laughs> there's so much more to do. And I think it's it's the people you surround yourself with. Again, it goes back to one of the core pieces of medtech color, right? Creating this thought leadership, creating this community. Um, it's, it's the little wins, but it's, it's the folks around you who are doing amazing work. Um, MedTech colors, like maybe the fifth or sixth hat many of us wear, um, apart from your day job, there's, you know, several others. So everything's voluntary, but it's the cause behind it. And it's seeing the energy you're creating, um, and getting people to actually move the needle. I feel we're doing that. Um, just the relationships and the connections I've made through the collaborative community and then even borders of MedTech Color um, and the acceptance and, and the desire, like people want this. They're like, wow, 
you know, we, we really want to be a part of this. And, and, and I, 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 that's what keeps me going. And I think keeps many of the founders going. Um, and it's the little wins. So it, it's a, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. <laughs> and we're just getting started. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you for all your work. And I think it's an important work and I'm glad that you are one of those who make it happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for your work. I mean, uh, the fact that you give a voice to the diverse folks you've interviewed just on this podcast alone, because I know you do a lot more, um, is is telling of your belief in in like an inclusive med tech space. Uh, so thank you. I, I mean, I love listening to your podcast. So it was a real honor to be asked to speak with you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you're one of our guests. We're trying very hard to uh, be inclusive because I think everybody have a story and the diversity of story makes life so much more interesting. It does. That's it. Make it interesting. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.